0: we've been working through the book of Hebrews, if you're just joining us this morning, and we're on chapter 3 today. It's been great to hear that some of you have been picking this up and reading it a little bit yourselves, and uh, getting to grips with the book of Hebrews. Hopefully by now, uh, we're kind of starting to make some headway through the book, and hopefully some of what you're starting to notice are some of the contrasts in the book of Hebrews, the, the ups and downs. You know, we've moved from from the dizzying heights of chapter 1 where Christ is superior to the angels and he's the radiance of the Father's glory and he's the exact representation of his nature, this very high and lofty uh, Christology to the the bitter depths of chapter 2 where Christ is made for a time lower than the angels and he is made like his brothers and sisters in every way and is even made perfect through his suffering. And so there's this very low, earthy, christology It's as if the author is moving between these different axes of uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And then we get through to chapter 3, which is where we're at today. And Jesus is always uh, present through the book of Hebrews. But what starts to happen in chapter 3 is this little community to which the letter to to the Hebrews was written starts to come into view a little bit more. Some of their struggles, some of their sufferings, and we'll see a little bit more of that today. Uh, so we're in, we're in chapter 3. I'm, I'm not going to have time today to go through the first six verses of chapter 3, but we do have study sheets available for each of these messages. So if you want to do some extra learn, it's kind of like Extra for Experts, you remember that back in school? Extra for Experts. If you get all your homework done in class, you do Extra for ec- I don't know why you'd ever do it. You know? Why not just go slower in class and then do the normal homework? But Extra for Experts, if you're keen, we do have study sheets, and on the study sheet for today, uh, there are some questions for the uh, first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3. And then we are going to pick it up in uh, verse 7 of Hebrews. But before we read that, this is, this is a really cool passage in Hebrews. Because what it is, is actually what we call a, a midrash. Alright, this is not a nasty red mark around your stomach. Alright, that one's coming out for the second service. Alright, I thought I to laugh. It's not, it's not a nasty... I'm going to stand up, see if we get a bit more uh, energy going here. It, it, it's not, a, it's not uh, something strange or crazy. A midrash is, in fact, a Jewish form of interpretation of the Scriptures. And usually how it works is uh, with a midrash, you have the rabbi or the teacher who is giving this uh, exposition, and he will begin by reciting a section of the Old Testament, whether it's the Torah or the Psalms or whatever, And then he will go and give his own commentary on it afterwards. And during the commentary, he will often um, recite again little sections of the uh, original passage that he's quoted. And if you look in Hebrews 3, if you've got your Bible in front of you, uh, you will see from verse 7 onwards, this is exactly what happens. You have this passage that's quoted and then an exposition of that passage. So we're actually dealing with like a little Jewish form of uh, exegesis or biblical interpretation. It's a little bit more complicated than that in this instance because, in fact, the author of Hebrews, the passage that this midrash is based on, if you've done any of the cross-referencing, if you've got one of those Bibles that takes you to where these references are from, you'll see it's actually from Psalm 95. And then you get to Psalm 95 and you realize that that psalm itself is a type of midrash on an even earlier story. So you kind of end up sort of stepping stones back through the Bible And you get right back to this ancient, ancient story way back in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And that is the story on which Hebrews 3 and most of chapter 4 is built. And it's very difficult to understand those two chapters of Hebrews without having at least some familiarity with what's going on back in the book of Numbers. So this morning what we're going to need to do is keep a finger in Hebrews 3 or 4 or a bookmark or whatever you've got. And a finger back in Numbers 13 which is actually where we're going to start even before we read any of Hebrews. So dive all the way back there and dust the uh, cobwebs off Numbers, which is a book that rarely sees the light of day in Christian circles often. Um, Now I won't, won't read the whole, it's spread over a couple of chapters, but essentially what is going on here, the nation of Israel has recently been led out of captivity in Egypt. You remember they were a slave people, not even really a proper nation. They were just a slave people in Egypt under Pharaoh, and God leads them out through the Red Sea brings them to Mount Sinai where he enters into covenant relationship with them and gives them the law the Torah he constitutes them as a nation nation of Israel and then they go on this little wilderness trip for just a few days and they end up in a place called the desert of Paran which is right on the edge of the land of Canaan which today is more or less is is the uh, borders of Israel the nation of Israel so they're in this desert Right, camping right on the edge of this land that God had promised to give them as their own possession. The problem, of course, being that the land of Canaan is not a vacant lot. It is inhabited by multiple people groups, all of them hostile. Um, one of them in particular, a really ferocious group of people named the Canaanites who occupied the, this beautiful coastal strip um, on, on the Mediterranean there. And so God says to Moses, who is leading the people, here's what I want you to do. Take a team of people, a team of scouts, go on a little scouting expedition into the land of Canaan and see what it's like. Take some samples of whatever you find there and then come back and let's talk about it. So Moses gets together these 12 guys representing the 12 tribes of Israel and they go off and spend 40 days in the land of Canaan, scoping it out, keeping a low profile, just sussing out the territory. They come back and uh, they get everybody together or at least the leaders And they give this report back to uh, Israel, effectively, on what the situation is like in Canaan. And you can read some of this report in Numbers 13, verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land, which was a huge bunch of grapes that they'd picked up. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which he sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. So there you go. They've got milk and honey. That's the positive, all right? That's all all the essential breakfast ingredients are covered here, milk and honey. And uh, here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And then jump down to verse 32. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So basically what they're saying is this is absolutely hopeless. There is no way that we can go in pitiful small militia army that we are and try and take possession of this land occupied by multiple people groups who have been trained for battle for for decades. They're They're a lean mean fighting machine. We can't do it, there's no point. So they spread this report and basically the people of Israel are gripped by fear they're terrified of these giants, these, these huge people that were living in Canaan. And they start essentially this, this leadership insurrection against Mo, Moses and Aaron and say, what, how on earth is it that you've taken us out of Egypt only to let us die at the hands of our enemies? It would have been better for us to go back and be slaves in Egypt than be slaughtered at the hands of these people. So they start rebelling against their leaders and God is not too impressed with the whole thing. Okay, that's, let, let's pause it there for a second. Now jump back to Hebrews. And uh, let's just see what the author is going to do with this narrative. He starts off here in verse 7 of chapter 3, quoting, again, remember, not quoting from Numbers, which we've just read, but quoting from a miniature version of that account, which is found in Psalm 95. So in verse 7, he says, So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. One of the reasons that the author of Hebrews likes this version of the story in Psalm 95 is because of the very first word in verse 7. What is it? Someone yell it out. No, not that word. I'm thinking of another one. Sorry, it's not the very first word. It's the very first word of the quote from Psalm 95. Today. Sorry, I put you wrong there. Today. And what that word does, effectively, is brings the story out of the distant past and brings it into the present for the writer of Hebrews and his community. And what he is saying is this. That narrative of the Israelites in the desert of Paran is no longer just an ancient historical narrative that's found way back as something that happened to your ancestors. That story is now being retold and replayed in your own community. That narrative of the Israelites and the scouting mission and the bad report and all that sort of stuff, that's now being worked out in your midst. You are reliving it just as those Israelites were. And the, and the beauty of God's word is that as we read now Hebrews chapter 3, we are similarly drawn into this story. And just as we read Hebrews chapter 3, those readers were reading back to the book of Numbers, and we all find ourselves together as God's people, standing back in the shoes of those Israelites. And when you start to think about the parallels between what was going on for them and what was happening to the readers of Hebrews and even to us today, the parallels are actually quite remarkable, more than you might think. These Israelites had recently been taken out of captivity in Egypt. The readers of Hebrews had recently been taken out of captivity to sin through becoming Christ followers. These ancient Israelites had recently been brought into a covenant relationship with God at Mount Sinai. These uh, recipients of the letter to the Hebrews had recently been brought into a covenant relationship with God. They'd come through an exodus of their own. And now these Israelites were facing huge, horrendous challenges to the faith they had and to the promises God had made to them. In the same way, the recipients of the book of Hebrews are now facing real challenges, real giants in their own lives. And, And we can't overlook the fact that there may be those among us, even today, who are facing similar giants of our own. Now these giants that we would face in our lives are not going to be the same sorts of giants as they faced, either the recipients in the first century or the Israelites back in the book of Numbers. But nevertheless, it's a very real thing that you and I in our lives from time to time encounter these giants in the promised land. The the giants for us could come in many forms, many different shapes and sizes. It may be for you this morning that it's it's, it's a relationship that looms for you like this massive giant. Some, maybe you've had some relationship meltdown, someone that you've been close to, maybe at school, maybe uni, wherever, and that relationship that was going so well, you find this morning is in tatters. You find yourself estranged from a person, wondering how do we ever get to this point? How do we ever get so distant from each other? And that for you is like a giant that is shaking your faith and rocking you to the core of what you believe. Maybe the giant for you is financial. Maybe it's, it's health. Maybe it's those test results that came back positive, which is not a good thing. Or maybe it's being thrown into the role of being a caregiver for someone else. Maybe in your immediate family, even as you are trying to process stuff yourself, you're finding you're having to reach out and care for others and the whole thing is just escalating for you. Maybe this morning the giants that you're facing are the giants of addiction to alcohol, to pornography, to drugs, whatever it might be. These things stare us down in our lives. And they confront us as giants just as the Israelites were confronted with their own giants, just as the audience of Hebrews was confronted with theirs in the form of social ridicule, in the form of shame from their families, in the form even of government and state oppression and persecution. And so this word from the book of Hebrews really is a word to those who are facing giants and a word to those who would help others face those giants. Look at the first thing the author says here in verse 12 after citing Psalm 95. He says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's interesting the first place that he goes, you know, of all the things he could have said at this point. He doesn't say, see to it that none of you take wrong action. He doesn't say, see to it that none of you speak false words. He says, see to it that none of you have a sinful and unbelieving heart. It is the heart that is the most important thing we can guard when we are facing this sort of opposition, these sorts of struggles and trials in our life. It is so imperative that we look after and protect our heart. You may have heard the story of a guy called Horatio Spafford. Lived in the uh, late 19th century in the States. He was a prominent Chicago attorney. And he, he had a, a very illustrious career until a series of personal devastations just wreaked havoc in his life. The first thing to happen was uh, pneumonia struck his four-year-old son and he ended up dying of pneumonia at four. And then the great Chicago fire of 1871 came along and, and Spafford owned a whole a series of real estate properties uh, on the Chicago waterfront and uh, they were all devastated by the fire. He lost a huge amount of property and money that was tied up in that property. And in the midst of that anguish Spafford thought I've got to, I've got to get out of the situation. He was going to take his family away on a European vacation over to Wales. And the day before they were scheduled to leave, he got word that he was required for a mandatory meeting back in Chicago to do with the wreckage of the fire and what was going to happen to the remains of his property. So he stayed behind, sent his family off ahead on a ship to Wales. And that ship never made it. Halfway across the Atlantic it struck another vessel and in 15 minutes it sunk. Four daughters of uh, Horatios were killed. They drowned. His wife survived and sent him the telegram with just two words on it, Saved Alone. Immediately, Spafford left everything he was doing and uh, set sail himself for Wales to be with his wife to comfort her. And in the midst of that personal anguish, his ship passed the point, the approximate point, where his family, his daughters, had drowned. And he tells how at that moment, just a wave of peace flooded his heart And he felt the assurance and the security of being held in the arms of a loving God. And it was that moment for him that provided the incentive. That point of grief became the impetus for his uh, writing of one of the most well-loved and probably often sung hymns that Christians have ever sung. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. It is well, it is well with my soul. How easy is it for you to say that this morning? It is well with my soul. It doesn't mean there are no more questions. It doesn't mean there's no room for doubting. It doesn't mean even there's no room for anger. It's okay to have anger. It's okay to be angry at God. He can handle it. He can take it. He's big enough. It's okay to doubt God. It's okay to have those questions. But the key is to persevere and cling with all your might, to God through those questions, through those doubts, through that anger, and to go through those things with him rather than apart from him. And it's at those times when it is so imperative that we cling to the promises of God, the promises that he has made in his word and soak ourselves in them so richly, the promise of God that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you and abandon you. The promise that He is our shepherd, that He restores our soul, that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He is with us and He comforts us. Some of you need to hear those words with new freshness and vigor this morning. That promise of God in Isaiah 40, that those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength, mount up with wings like eagles, walk and not grow tired, run and not grow weary. Promise of the Psalms that God would lead us to a rock that's higher than we are. When our heart is overwhelmed within us psalm 73 that though my heart and strength might fail god is my strength and my portion forever the promises from jesus own words come to me you who are weary and burdened and i will give you rest or romans 8 that the glory that we're going to receive far outstrips the suffering in the present the suffering's not worth comparing to the glory that's coming down the track that god's going to work everything out for the good of those who love him. Even from right at the end of the scriptures in Revelation 21, that magnificent portrait of a new heaven and a new earth, that promise that one day God will restore on this earth a world where there is no more mourning and death and crying and pain. Friends, those promises can breathe life into your weary bones this morning. Those promises can be rays of light in the darkness and the dampness of the giants that you may be facing in your life, just as the small fledgling group of believers in the first century would have rested on many of these same promises as they tried to persevere in faith. And it is so critical that we don't let our hearts be drawn away from God in these times. That means spending more time than usual soaking yourself in His Word. It means spending more time dwelling on his presence, his power, his provision, his protection than time spent worrying and dwelling about your problems. It means not allowing our our mental and emotional energy to gravitate towards those things that confront us and shake us this morning, but anchoring ourselves in God and his word and allowing his promises just to refresh us, to wash over us, to renew us and bring us to the point where we can say with Horatio Spafford, it is well with my soul. Even though there are storms, even though there are giants, there is a deep peace and a deep sense of security. Let's head back to the book of Numbers. Back to Numbers uh, 13. There's another element to this story, those of you that are uh, familiar with it. Not all of those scouts that came back from Cain and brought back a bad report. There were two that didn't, Joshua and Caleb. And in fact, they brought back the exact opposite assessment of the situation. And you can read what they said in uh, verse 6 of Numbers 14. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. This is when they saw how negatively everyone else had responded. They tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And as you read on, you see that Joshua and Caleb were almost killed for their optimism. The people rose up to literally stone them to death. They were so incensed with this report that just seemed so naive, idealistic, and out of touch with what the land actually held for these people. And yet Caleb and Joshua persisted in their steadfast trust in the promises of God that he was going to give them this land. Now flick back to Hebrews again. I know we're going back and forwards all the time. It's a good finger exercise for you. And verse 13 is where this starts to come out in Hebrews. But encourage one another, the author says, daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold firmly to our original conviction. This idea of encourage one another, what lies in the background of this text here, as it's built back on the Numbers narrative, is the role of the encouragers in the book of Numbers, Joshua. Joshua and Caleb. When the author talks about encouraging one another, what he's saying is, cast yourself in the role, not of the 99% of Israelites who rebelled and grumbled against God, but in the role of my servant Joshua and my servant Caleb. And what I love about Hebrews 3, 14, uh, 13, with this idea of encouraging one another, is that the verse is addressed to the community, not just to individuals. But the author is saying, there needs to be among you When people in your community face these sorts of trials, there needs to be Caleb's and there needs to be Joshua's. And when those people then go through trials of their own, they become those whom others can encourage and others become Joshua's and Caleb's to them. And this is the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. This is part of helping each other. This is part of loving each other. This is part of being the family of God. The very worst thing we can do when we confront these trials in our lives is retreat and pull in, as our hearts sometimes want to do. I know this is my natural tendency, is almost just to remove myself and not reach out. This is just not how the Christian life is ever supposed to be lived. We need to be able to reach out to those who will encourage us. Those of you this morning that are facing these kinds of challenges, who is your Joshua? Who is your Caleb? Who is it? Whether in this congregation here or somewhere else, who is your encourager? Because, man, we need them. We need these people to be speaking into us words of life. I have in this church a Joshua, a Caleb, who is an encourager to me, big time. Because I can get down and mopey and depressed. That's just the nature of my personality. Dwell on things, and you know, I can I can relate to that statement in Numbers 13, where the people felt like grasshoppers in their own eyes. You know, that you sort of just get this perspective: I'm so small, my problems are so big. You know, I hate to disappoint you. I, mean, I wish I was super pastor, but unfortunately, <laughs> you're dealing with a real person here. But you know, this is just the reality. And uh, you know, this 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 guy in this church who was this to me, it, you know, when I when I meet with him and talk to him, I just come away each time feeling like there really is hope. There really is hope. It's not as bad as I think it is. My problems aren't as bad as I might make them out to be. There's hope. I can carry on. I can go another round. I can get into it. We need these friends. One of the best ways that you can get, if if no one comes to mind. Join a life group. Yeah, honestly, a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting around with my life group at Shore, just in the lounge, and we had a prayer time, broke into guys and girls, and just a bunch of blokes sitting around on the carpet, just starting to get real with each other just starting to share our challenges and our struggles and asking each other to pray, which is quite a tough thing for guys to do because we like to be a bit macho and put on the mask and pretend we've got it all together. But I was so encouraged, as I felt the freedom and others did as well, just to begin becoming a little bit more honest than we had in the past and saying, I am actually going through a hard time. And not everyone there, you know, obviously was facing these huge challenges and giants, and that's fine. But those who weren't could then assume the role of encourager to speak a word of life into someone else's life. That's what this is about. And so on the flip side, who are you being a Joshua or a Caleb to? Those of you who this morning feeling like you sort of picked the wrong day to come to church, you know, we're talking about giants and our lives and these kind of things. My life's going perfectly well, thanks very much, you know. Why am I even here? Because you need to hear Hebrews 3.13. And be a Joshua and a Caleb to someone else. Who is there, even within your own social circle, that you can begin to reach out to and encourage and build up? And it doesn't mean just wallowing in their self-pity with them. It means helping to lift them out. Sometimes, friends, that even means speaking a hard word to that person. When when depression or these sorts of things become unhealthy and, and this questioning, doubting spiral goes on, it sometimes means really helping to lift them out by challenge. And that takes a real sensitivity and discernment to what the Spirit of God is doing in that person's life. But cast yourself in the role of a Joshua and Caleb and begin praying about who God would lead you to that you can start fulfilling this role for. We need Joshua's. We need Caleb's. We need to be encouraged. We need to go through these challenges and face these giants within the context of the family of God. One more time, back to Numbers. The story, uh, the narrative in Numbers doesn't really have a very happy ending. I wish it did. I think this is probably why, you know, when movies get made about different parts of the Bible and so on, they sometimes just don't feel quite right. It's because these stories in the Old Testament and so on don't actually follow very well the flow of a Hollywood drama. They don't sort of always rise to a great crescendo and then just have a perfectly peaceful and happy resolution. They're just almost too real to be cast into great movies. They're too nitty gritty and they just follow the contours of human life. There's all kinds of ups and downs. But it doesn't go particularly well for the Israelites and God, to be honest, is not uh, particularly impressed with the response of the Israelites who grumble against him. And so he passes his verdict on the whole situation in Numbers 14 verse 20. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you ask. This is in response to Moses actually starts because God... Immediately after the Israelites have have rebelled, God says to Moses, this is so atrocious and abhorrent to me, I'm going to wipe them out with a plague, and I'm going to start again with you. Which is an incredible statement to me. This is how far he's brought them, and he's just threatening right now. It's like uh, Noah's Ark all over again. You know, I'm I'm about to wipe these people out, and I'll start again through you, Moses. Moses intercedes and says, don't do that, because then what will the Egyptians think? They'll think we're just some pansy little people that don't follow a very strong God at all. And so God... um, relents on this occasion which is a fascinating insight into God interacting with with humanity but that's another sermon and then he eventually says this in verse 20 "I've, I've forgiven them as you asked nevertheless as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my my servant Caleb has a different spirit, and Joshua is implied here as well, and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Isn't that just where they came from? They're saying, hang on, actually, we've just come from the Red Sea. We are heading this way. We were, going, we we're going for Canaan. And God's saying, no, pack your bags. You're heading back to the desert. You see how tantalizingly close they came to entering the promised land at this point? There was going to be no 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. That only happened... Because of their disobedience and their rebellion against God at this point. And he says, okay, pack your bags. You are going to now be a nomadic people wandering in the desert. One year for every day those scouts were in the promised land. Forty years before you ever get to set your foot on the soil of Canaan. And that's where the whole wilderness experience came from. Back to Hebrews. Let's finish off this passage in Hebrews chapter 3. See where the author goes with this. Verse 15 of Hebrews 3. Here's what he says. As it has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses had led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? Because that whole generation died in the desert. It was their children that entered the promised land. And verse 18, And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. This is just a tale of a sorry spiral of events that starts with the Israelites being fearful, of these giants, the rumors of giants in the promised land, terrified and seized with fear. That fear turns into anger at their leaders for bringing them into this kind of situation where they're about to be slaughtered. That anger turns into grumbling against Moses and Aaron and challenging the very leaders that God had set up to lead them, which is a pretty serious offense in God's eyes. And that turns into God being quite outraged by the whole thing and bringing upon them this punishment of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And you see the spiral. It just starts with fear on their part and ends in this completely wilderness sort of experience. It may be this morning that this is kind of the trail that your life has taken. Maybe to this point you you haven't actually dealt with the giants in your life that are confronting you that well. Maybe you haven't really reached out to those who could help you. Maybe you haven't exercised a lot of trust and faith in God. And you find yourself this morning exactly where these Israelites did, back in the wilderness, with a huge chasm between you and God, wondering, how on earth did I ever get here? You know, you just find yourself at the end of a, at the end of a day, one day, in, 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 the, in the boardroom or at home with, with your hands, your head in your hands, just wondering, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? How has my life spiraled out of control? How has my work had such a dehumanizing effect on me? How have I drifted so far from God? I think this is what the author meant back in verse 14 by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is incredibly deceiving and this is why we need one another because it will just slowly and subtly drag us away from God. And as our hearts uh, drift away from their anchorage in our heavenly Father, that eventually passes into action and we become those who no longer really follow or talk with or spend much time with God. And if that's you this morning, I think the author of Hebrews would probably have one word to say to you. The first word again of Psalm ninety five, the quotation here, the word today. It's a word that crops up three times in this three times in this short paragraph Today. Every day is God's today. Every day it is still called today. And that means every day when you roll out of bed and and your feet hit that floor, it is as if your feet hit the sand of the desert of Paran and you find yourself again in the shoes of those Israelites who have a choice to make every day afresh. Which role am I going to play today? Am I going to follow the path of the Israelites who were seized by fear and ended up turning against the God who had brought them out of Egypt? Or am I going to cast myself in the role of Joshua and Caleb? and hold on to the strength and the promises and the might and the wisdom and the power of God despite all the evidence to the contrary? Am I going to dig my toes in and carry on today? It's a question that we face every single day. doesn't matter what happened yesterday doesn't matter which of those roads you went yesterday. What matters is which road are you going to go today. Doesn't matter how far you've come from God, friends. It doesn't matter how big that chasm is this morning between you and him. Even if you're feeling like God could just never take me back. He'd never forgive me for that. He'd never allow me to return to him. Every day is called today. You don't need to worry about yesterday. Don't worry too much about tomorrow. Jesus said tomorrow's got enough troubles of its own. Leave that one aside. You just concentrate on what you're going to do for the next few hours today. Whose shoes are you going to walk? Who are you going to hold on to? Who are you going to turn to? Today is today. And that means just putting one foot in front of the other, taking one day at a time and talking and walking with your heavenly Father who loves you and desires through the power of his Holy Spirit to come alongside you, to nurture you and help you and give you strength that you don't have to see you through the trials that you're facing. The same God who will eventually lead you into a glorious and promising future, if not in this life, then certainly in the heaven that is to come. Well, we hope you enjoyed the message this morning. And as we wrap up the program today, I want to share with you a story. But it's not my story, and I'm not going to share it. I've asked a good friend of mine, Nahuia Tauriri, to join us on the program to share her own story with you. I think uh, you'll find what Nahuia shares in her own background, her own journey of faith, brings expression to a lot of what we've been talking about in terms of facing giants in our lives and confronting the difficulties and the struggles along the way. So Nahulia, it's great to have you with us and why don't you share with us a little bit about your own story and your own journey.
1: I was born into a family of 10 and I'm number nine in the peaking order. Family life was really good most of the time until my father, who was an alcoholic, We started on one of his drinking binges and we become physically and verbally abusive with my mother and siblings. As a child I had rheumatic fever which caused extensive damage to my heart valves and this was the beginning of my ongoing health problems. And because of my ill health, I was spared from the worst of my father's abuse. I can remember in my early years of life going to church each week with my mum and siblings Sometimes my father would come too. It was at this church um, that I met the family who, when I was seven, would take me into their home and become family. I remember listening to stories about God and singing songs about Jesus and other people caring to think of the wrong. Um, I attended baptism classes when I was about 12 and was baptized. In hindsight, I guess I was just doing what was expected of me in a Christian's world. Today I know and fully understand that baptism is a, is a public display of my asking God into my heart and accepting Him as Lord and Saviour of my life. Because of my situation at home, it was decided that I would go live with my new family. This meant a change in lifestyle and culture. It was white and formal compared to the laid-back, easy-going kind of lifestyle I was used to. As a young child, it was relatively easy for me to adapt, apart from the natural feelings of missing my siblings and my mum and dad. Um, But in my late teens, I became restless, wondering who am I and where do I belong. I felt the need to go back to my whanau. This was a very difficult thing for my foster family to witness, especially my mum. Um, my life has been and continues to be enriched by the love and support I feel from this family. By the time I went back to my whanau, they had stopped attending church and shortly after that I did too. <clears throat> Adjusting to life back here was difficult at first. I was felt like a foreigner among my own. It was a lonely time and made me miss what I'd left behind.
0: So what was it that changed in your life after that you sort of reached a turning point and things started to uh, shift for you talk us through what that turning point was
1: it was about eight years into this journey on this road to nowhere that i suffered a stroke and returned home to live with my foster family like my, my stroke was so severe that i couldn't walk talk, or could do anything for myself for weeks the medical profession considered my survival a miracle and we're a mate that I lived to tell the story. I can remember thinking at the time, I wish I hadn't. The road to recovery was long and I faced many challenges. I had to learn to speak again and to walk and to do things using only one hand. So if you've ever broken or injured your arm or hand, you'll be able to relate to the difficulties I had to overcome in doing simple everyday tasks. I was really angry at God at the time because he could have stopped this from happening to me and he chose not to. Having to deal with the reality of being a young adult with a disability really does screw you. My self-esteem was crushed and my future looked hopeless. My all-time favorite line was, I can do it myself. As if I was convincing myself that I didn't need anyone to help me get through this. I believe they call this pride. Took a walk through my lowest valley when I felt broken and defeated just for me to see God. A God who did care and who would come down and rescue me from my struggle, just like a mother would, to hold and comfort her hurting child. This was the most defining moment ever in my life. Now I was in a place where I could, my return journey to God could begin. Slowly the walls I'd put between me, God and others fell away. There was significant change in my attitude (laughs) as I spent time in prayer, reading my Bible and other other Christian books which all led to the restoration of my relationship with God. I shed many tears during this time, tears of sheer frustration and hopelessness. I often felt loneliness, lonely because no one could fully relate to or understand what I was going through. How wrong was I? Jesus had been there, done that way before I ever got there.
0: And so where are you at today with all this? Where are you up to in this journey that you've been on?
1: It's been well over 15 years since my stroke, and today I continue to live with the permanent paralysis in my left arm and hand. They are constant reminders of having God back in my life. I know now that God used the stroke to get, me, get my attention and bring me back to himself. My ill health continues to challenge me. At a recent hospital checkup with my cardiologist, I was told that the overall working of my heart is now functioning at 50%, compared with a rating of 60% after my fourth lot of open heart surgery in 2005. Today, I can say with great confidence that I'm not afraid of what the future holds for me. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has provided a way for me to one day be in a place good heaven where all my health issues will be history and this worn out body of mine will be brand new. (laughs) Hooray God. Um, God's unfailing love, his amazing grace and his total acceptance of me, even after where I've been and what I've done in the past, overwhelms me. I know my God loves me and he knows that I love him. And I'm certain that will never, ever change.